This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the eminent historian Oliver Zanz about his new and timely book, The Man Who Understood Democracy, The Life of Alexis de Tocqueville. The book is timely, Olivier, because everywhere in the media these days, the doomsayers among us say that democracy is a dead letter or lost cause, perished from the earth, so weak in the head and the knees that it has been reduced from a courageous new idea to a nostalgic sentiment. You are one of our foremost Tocqueville scholars, and I count on you to explain why the funeral orations are misinformed. Maybe you can begin with Tocqueville's lifelong love of liberty and how and where he came by it. Okay, very good. Well, first, uh, uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Tocqueville has a short life. Uh, he died, uh, he, he was born in 1805. He died at the age of 53, and he struggled with health issues all his life. He came from a from the highest ranks of the French nobility. I think uh, that's an important point to make for two reasons. First, the uh, French nobility and an idea of liberty that was not his, uh, an idea that they had privileges, they had prerogatives, and the justification for their prerogatives is that, of course, they serve some local functions, they administer justice, they fought in the wars, they were in the military, so this is why they don't have to pay taxes and they had privileges. Privileges dependent on others not having them, uh, on inequality. Tocqueville was the only member of his family who had a different vision for the future and embraced a democratic vision. This didn't come easy to him because his a large part of his family was decimated during the French Revolution during the terror, where as aristocrats they were guillotined, his grandparents, his uncles and aunts, his cousins. It was a miracle that his own parents uh, uh, were not uh, executed because they were free from prison the day before they were supposed to go to the guillotine. So Tocqueville, the young Tocqueville who embraced, who visited America and, and embraced a different notion of liberty, uh, had not only had a fight with his, I mean, he, he ran friends with everybody in his, from his childhood, but he had to to mark his distance from them. And he did it very courageously. Now, I say this because it, for Tokyo's family, equality, the notion of equality was a bad word. Equality meant leveling. It meant the end of aristocratic privileges, and it had to be fought. What Tocqueville discovered in the new nation here, in the Young Republic, was for the white population, and Tocqueville was very clear about that because he was a long, uh, uh, lifelong abolitionist, that for the, for the white population, liberty was something else. It was not 
It was not aristocratic liberty. And equality was not leveling. It was the source of freedom, the source of liberty for a larger number of people who could achieve their lives the way they hoped to. And, and, and that was the major difference between the society he left behind, his friends and family, and the society he discovered in, in a short trip, nine and a half months in America in 1831-32, a society where a certain idea of equality, uh, uh, no privileges at birth, gave more people the freedom to achieve their lives. They therefore could add strength to the community. That's exactly right. So this notion of community is the second component of Tocqueville's contribution here, because well, Tocqueville made a very strong di distinction between individualism and selfishness, or as he put it, between individualism and egoism, or egoism. So, so selfishness was bad, but individualism was a form of strength you have to achieve. And, and he recognized this. He also recognized that individuals couldn't do everything by themselves. So he added this notion of association, of community, of, of like-minded individuals to achieve certain goals. Now, that was a very... Now, nowadays, you know, everybody talks about associations. It's part of American life. But one has to recall that in the early republic, people were not talking about associations. They were talking about factions, and they feared them. And they feared them, you know. Washington's uh, and his farewell address uh, feared factions. And Madison, all he could think of was that, okay, you have to multiply factions so they cancel each other out. But he still didn't like them. Uh, so it is really Tocqueville who introduced this notion of associations, of like-minded people joining. Of course, he got a lot of inspiration from a certain idea that he developed about the New England town in the 17th century, the way his informants in Boston uh, uh, talked to him about it. I'm thinking especially of a Unitarian minister named Jared Sparks, who was the first history professor at Harvard and, and then became president of Harvard. He was a good, became a very close friend of Tokyo and gave him a, a you know, explained to him uh, the creation of the New England town, and Tocqueville ran with it, uh, and, and developed this concept of association, which became his major contribution to American political theory. Yes, I, I think I read somewhere a line from Tocqueville where he says the Americans uh, in association do good simply because it's useful. Right. Yeah, well, that's also an important concept here. Uh, in, the sense, in the sense that Tocqueville came to privileged usefulness of a virtue. Self-interest was a good thing. Tocqueville developed the concept of self-interest properly understood. And what he meant by, what he meant by this, so there's a difference between self-interest and selfishness. What he meant by it 
is that if your own interests serve the community, because you generate activity, you generate profit, you generate returns for society as a whole, then it's a good thing, that self-interest properly understood. And, and he says, you know, uh, he, and then he added, I wouldn't think that these people are virtuous, but they are enlightened. And, 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 and so, talking in a sense, uh, you know, talking in a sense kind of devalued virtue for, in favor of usefulness for the greater number. Right. How long again is he in 1831, 1832? Nine months, did you say? Nine and a half months. Yeah. Yeah, well, he was only 25 years old. Uh, he was a young lawyer, no um, magistrate, an apprentice magistrate, an apprentice prosecutor uh, uh, in a courthouse in Versailles during the uh, French restoration of the crown and, uh, and, and in, in uh, and right after the 1830 revolution, when France uh, adopted a constitutional monarchy, his family was all for the old monarchs, the whole absolute monarchy, and who had been dethroned this revolution, uh, the Bourbon family. So he didn't, he, he was not a Democrat. He was loyal to his family's ideas, but he wasn't sure he wanted even to serve a constitutional monarchy. He swore a lot of loyalty to it, just to sort of to, but decided to wait the future out somewhere. And, and going to America seemed like a good idea. Uh, in France at the time, a group of uh, influential reformers were promoting prison reform. And the U.S. was famous, there was famous reforms in the, in the American penitentiaries in Sing Sing in New York, in Auburn in upstate New York, at the Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, in a few other places. And Tocqueville and a friend of his by the name of Beaumont decided that they, they, they were going to use their connections to get an assignment to go write a report on American prisons. That was a pretext. The real idea was to write to, to see what was described as a democracy. The brilliant move there was that most liberals in France were admirers of England and English constitutional principles. Tocqueville had gone to England and he bypassed England to go to America directly. At first he collected all kinds of letters of recommendation from well-known people, but then he discovered quickly the need to use them. It was easy to meet people, and you meet people, uh, about 200 different informants, mostly, mostly American uh, aristocrats of sorts, I mean, the equivalent, you know, the, the John Quincy Adams and the Polo Weeks uh, of the period. Uh, but he talked to Jackson as well, and he interviewed prisoners in, 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 in penitentiaries and went into their cells and talked to them. He talked to priests and ministers. He talked to a pretty wide variety of people, about 200 Americans in all, wonderful notebooks. I did an English edition of Tocqueville's notebooks at the University of Virginia Press published it. It's a big, expensive 700-page book, but it's a beautiful book. And I, those, were, those, were, those are fascinating documents. These letters home were great. You know, Tocqueville was a great letter writer. 
So he kept a very detailed record of the trip. When he arrived, was he fluent in English? No, no, no. He had a reading knowledge of English. All right. He learned English on the boat. Uh, there was some British and American travelers with him during the sea voyage. And, and they taught him English. And he, he, but he was a, he was, he, he was a quick study. He, he learned fast. And, and he managed, uh, he managed. Some people talked to him in French, you know, the, French, the American elite was still yeah. pretty yeah. well versed in French. But on the whole, he managed to understand everything he was seeing. And he covered a lot of ground, I mean, in, in his nine months. With, with the exception of the American South, where he had to go quickly. So, but basically, it was a circle. He arrived in Newport, Rhode Island went down to New York City and stayed in the city for a while, visited prisons in the day, hopped up with the elites at dinner parties at night, then moved up upstate New York, went to Albany, made acquaintance with the Albany Regency, the Jacksonians, moved down the Mohawk Valley, visited uh, on the way, a very important informant, one of John Spencer, we gave him a crash course on the Constitution. That was very significant. He was a New York, New York uh, politician and had written the New York Constitution, so rewritten it. So he, that was his major, uh, you know, introduction to this. Then he crossed the lakes, went to Michigan, explored the Michigan forest with Indian guides, went all the way to the end of the frontier, toured the lakes, went to Canada briefly, then to New England. That was the heart of the experience where he met a very significant number of people. I mentioned Jared Sparks, he met John Quincy Adams. He met many people around, uh, around John Quincy Adams. He then went, went uh, back down to New York and then the mid-Atlantic states Philadelphia and Baltimore, and cross the country again, going down the Ohio River, all the way, stop in Cincinnati, where actually he met briefly the young Salmon Chase, who was only a 22-year-old lawyer, soon to be, you know, Chief Justice of the Lincoln, I mean, a few years later. But then he heard, he, he heard that the French government wanted them back, he and his companion, without giving an explanation. So he had to rush for the South. He went down the Mississippi on the steamboat, witnessed the early manifestation of the Trail of Tears with the Choco Indians crossing the Mississippi. He had seen Indians also in the Michigan forest and also in upstate New York, different, different visions of them. Uh, briefly to New Orleans, back to, and then crossed the South to go back to Washington before Congress, while Congress was still in session and, uh, and then back to, back to, uh, back to New York. What, what surprised him? He felt ambivalent about American sense of freedom. He felt that uh, most people were not really speaking openly their mind. Uh, Jared Sparks in Boston told him, in this country, the majority is always white, uh, which of course seems natural to us, but that was not what the French aristocrat believed. So. So Tocqueville ran with it and developed the idea of the tyranny of the majority. 
Most people, most of his American friends were upset about this. They were especially upset as the British used this line to really explain that British institutions were better than American institutions, where the tyranny of the majority dominated. Edward Everett, uh, you know, Edward Everett, who gave the, the, yeah. the long speech at Gettysburg, wrote a long review praising Tocqueville, except on that point, so Tocqueville doesn't know what he's talking about here. But Tocqueville felt that the tyranny of the majority was an impediment to the freedom of speech in this country. And uh, actually, and that was a very influential theory because John Stuart Mill in England ran with it too. So I think uh, Tocqueville had a, a, a mixed emotions about this. Uh, about the American elites uh, uh, playing nobles, he made fun of them. It was not very serious. What really Tocqueville admired is... Americans from the very beginning, and, and Jared Sparks really explained this to him, you know, one of the great things that happened to this country, there were really two things. One is that the community existed before there was a government for the country, or for the right. army. So, so the country was built from the bottom up. And also, the other thing is that we were left alone, basically. So we had to, to sort of band together and create create something. So what Tocqueville explained is that in in America, liberty is old. It's equality that's reasonably new. So liberty came even before equality, but the only way, but keeping liberty alive takes a lot of work because Tocqueville's idea of liberty is not at all that you do whatever you want to do because you're free. Tocqueville's idea of liberty is that you're free to achieve your potential. You're free to, to realize your life. But it takes work. It's a kind of a positive liberty. It's not a negative liberty of rights. It's a positive liberty of work, of action, of achievement. And it is, and the will to, to, the will to achieve is, has to be constantly renewed. Okay. So, Right. So the fact that you have to fight for your life, you have to create community of your own with your neighbors, all of this feeds the habit of liberty. What would he say? I mean, if you follow the American scene these days, I mean, the uh, social media and various uh, factions are screaming about closing down this society. You know, freedom is both freedom to exploit and freedom to build. And today, it seems to me that all the, the tyranny of the majority is people locking down freedom. Yes, I, I completely agree. I think, I think, I think uh, Tocqueville would be quite concerned today. I have to say that Tocqueville was quite concerned in his day because... It's the problem of those days was the opposite. You know, will, will democracy actually survive? Will it work? Will Americans be able to maintain it? So, uh, yeah. he, he actually feared the disintegration of the Union. In, in his own fashion, he predicted the Civil War. He didn't predict this, uh, a a, a war between the states, he predicted a race war in the South. Uh, but he did predict a civil war. And he, 
he was really concerned that the democratic experiment was not yet sufficiently established. Uh, he was very concerned with lawlessness in the territories. He says this, this democratic system, the balance of powers, all of what we talk about, what we praise, is being questioned every day. You know? Like today, you know, we, 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 we are, many of us, I, I, I wish more of us, but many of us are really quite concerned with violence in, in the society. I mean, of course, we, we've lived through, through this atrocious gun violence that's going on. And, and, and in the danger of sending our children and grandchildren, I've, I'm old enough to have uh, several grandchildren going to, to school at the different grade levels. So, to real fear lawlessness, especially in the territories. So, so he was, not at all, you know, he didn't describe a done deal. He expressed a hope. Now, that's one other thing I want to say, really, but that's important about Tocqueville, is that his book, Democracy in America, Americans, you know, have lived in America for half a century. I always kept my French accent, but I've lived in America for half a century, and I've taught American history at UVA all my life, uh, 40, 43 years of teaching it. Tocqueville's uh, book on democracy in America is not a book of description, it's as much a book of invention. He put it all together. There's a lot of French history built into it, of English history built into it, and uh, it's a lot of comparative history built into it, all described as America. But when you read it, and I try to explain it in my book, much of it is a composite. Uh, it's a work of comparative political science. And, and uh, descriptions, of course, more prominent in the first volume than he published in 1835, while 18, the 1840 volume, volume 2, even though it's part of the same book, really, is more of a theory of democracy as a whole. But Tocqueville was concerned about the future of democracy, just as we are concerned about its survival. So I think, actually, this, this existentialist fear is partly what gives the book its life. And hopefully my biography of it too, <laughs> if I may say. Yeah, 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 because, I mean, doesn't he say at some other point that the march of democracy is uh, inevitable? Yeah, he says it's, it's inevitable, it must succeed. But, you know, his goal, that one thing is that it took a long time for Americans to read democracy in America. Okay, it was published in 1835 and 1840. Uh, the first volume was not published until 1838. And several people, I won't go into the details of the publication, but several people tried to get it published and publishers were not interested. Finally, in 1838, John Spencer was an informant uh, in upstate New York. I mentioned him already. Um, managed to do a small edition by pirating the British translation. And, and Tocqueville never made a cent on these American editions, by the way, because in those days, Americans were not respecting copyrights. So the point being that it's only in the Civil War and in New England, in New England magazine in the Civil War, that Americans began reading democracy in America critically. And then later on, for, for, you know, I, it's not, and, and it's really, and then, then it was forgotten completely during the Gilded Age. 
because because there was very little there is practically nothing on industrialization in this book. So in the days of Robert Barons, Tocqueville went forgotten. And it was only revived by a conservative movement in the fifties, mostly anti New Deal, to promote associations against the state. And Tocqueville then acquired a kind of conservative you know, role uh, in promoting conservative ideas, where actually I think he was very much a progressive, and, and I try to prove it in this biography. Although, again, Tocqueville was somebody who was constantly, with or with doubt, expressed those doubts in print. You have to read him quite closely to end up really getting a firm sense of his convictions, but they were there. What do you think Tocqueville would say about the democracy that he saw in 1831-32, and the democracy we have now. Well, I have um, often thought about it, uh, or often being asked the question, and I have to admit that um, I don't have a very good answer. Um, my wife tells me that I live in the past or in the future, but never in the present. She may have a point. Okay. <laughs> right. but, but, but the thing is this. Tocqueville visited uh, England in the, after his tour of America a couple of times before he wrote the second volume. And he visited uh, industrial England, and, and he discovered really firsthand the level of poverty in the richest country in the world at the time, of industrial poverty. And he developed positive the concept of the, uh, the industrial aristocracy. It's completely taken from England, even though he describes the fear of an industrial aristocracy in America, even though he based all of his observations on England. I explained that in the book. But, but the long and the short of it is that Tocqueville feared excessive inequality. Right. So he would yeah. be very concerned. That's what we have now in America. That's what we have now, and he wouldn't go for it. So he has a said he feared lawlessness because he felt democracy needed some kind of order or respect of the law. And he feared excessive inequality because it would destroy opportunities, and because also, so that's why he called it in a, in a, a new kind of aristocracy. Because, so at the time, so I think he would be among the people who would be raising, you know, warning signals. Right. All right, have you got a last word? Tocqueville was not a, a, a closet thinker. He, he didn't just stay in his study and thought about the world or just made a few trips, interesting trips. He became a politician because to him, it was more important to be a politician than to be a writer. And he, he fought some major issues in French politics, the abolition of slavery in the French colonies in the Caribbean, the, the freedom of teaching, uh, the reconciliation of church and state, prison reform, and, and the reinsertion of criminals. Um, for a short while after the 1848 revolution, he became foreign minister of the Second Republic. He was the constitution of the Second Republic. He was a man of action. And, and he, He's, he, he thought, and his political theory, he constantly renewed it uh, through his political practice. He tried to blend the two. He thought he had it in him to blend the two. He didn't succeed, but he had it in him. Now, when, after the 1848 revolution, the second Napoleon, Napoleon's nephew, 
called Napoleon II, became emperor in, uh, after the coup d'état in 1851. Uh, Tocqueville resigned his job as a, uh, uh, in, in, he resigned all of his political positions in, in the chamber and even locally in Normandy, in his, uh, where, and, and he wrote a masterpiece on the French Revolution and the old regime in France. Uh, and developed the great theory of revolution, of how revolution takes place when people have already a sense of, of, of a better life, of betterment. They have already improved their lot, which was the case in late 18th century France. People who are really oppressed really engage in revolution. It was a very influential theory. And then he died of tuberculosis very young, in age 53, so he never finished his great book at uh, age uh, 53. Now, can I say one more thing? Yes, by all means. Okay. One of the things that made this writing this biography really interesting to me, in addition to the fact that I am a, a great admirer of his work, is that Tocqueville was a great letter writer. And there are, believe me, there are 17 published volumes of his letters. The uh, editors of the Tocqueville Papers uh, all close friends of mine, uh, began working in, 18, in 1952. I was too young to help them then. And they completed the edition last year. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> Nobody was in a hurry, okay? But I, okay. I, I was... Uh, but anyway, there are 17 volumes of letters to people around the world and uh, correspondence of all kinds. They are absolutely wonderful letters and I... I must be one of the few people in the world to have read them all. Right. But, but the, it really uh, made me able, I think, to understand the character and communicate with him uh, as a biographer should. So I hope I succeeded. You know, you tell me. Thank you, Olivier Sanz, for talking with us today about the man who understood democracy, the life of Alexis de Tocqueville. Thank you. You're welcome. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details. <laughs>